This is Devin Turek from the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s geek out. We hope you enjoy the show. to episode four of ego the 80s geek out podcast my name is ian clark and here with me as always is the turtle to my tortoise mr a bradford anderson brad how are you i am fantastic on this lovely san diego sunny morning yeah we are recording it's very different obviously west coast east coast we've got quite a difference here not only time wise but weather wise i'm in new hampshire brad in california uh i woke up to snow and freezing rain and what uh what's the temperature there brad uh temperature right now is holding a oh my god it's actually 50 54 degrees so that would be 54. what i four people are people are probably panicking in the streets with their panicking. winter jackets Winter jackets and cardigans and uh, and fleeces. We still we sell fleeces uh, just in case weather like that. Yeah, anything below sixty degrees, that's uh, bad times out here. That's uh, Armageddon days. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome here. Although honestly, temperature wise, it's probably not a huge difference. It's probably in the thirties here. It's warmed up. Sure. So that's crazy. But uh, it is a either way. It's a beautiful Sunday morning because we're going to talk about the movie Blade Runner and. Listeners, you might be thinking, oh, you guys are already back-to-back movies. This is, is this what you guys are going to do? Not really. We, we kind of had the opportunity here to do something that could have been done at, a, at another time with Blade Runner. But Blade Runner is set in November of 2019. So it, it seemed like the right thing to do to just go ahead and say, yeah, we know we, we reviewed the thing last time. And normally we won't do two movies back-to-back. But it, it just felt like the right thing to do. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, so so we'll get back into something else. Actually, we'll tell you at the end what we're going to do next month. But uh, for this month, we, we thought it would be awesome to dive into Blade Runner uh, from 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford, obviously a sci-fi classic. Uh, but before we get into that, I, wanted to, I told Brad I was going to throw him a curveball, so we're just going to talk about something real quick here. Because it's not all 80s stuff, but this certainly ties back to our childhood in the 80s. I want to talk a little bit about The Mandalorian. Oh which, my god. It which is kicking so much ass. As of recording, we've seen the first 3 and mm. uh I think it's safe to say both Brad and I are thoroughly enjoying this. I can say that my uh interest in the series has waned the further it has gone on in the Star Wars canon, but now the Mandalorian being that this has been released, John Favreau and his partner there are doing justice. They're basically reaffirming what the middle three films did for me as a kid and the action the dialogue the characters that we're seeing the kind of the basic plot lines that they're exploring and take us in directions completely unexpected absolutely phenomenal i I cannot get enough of this series yeah it's it's so good so far and you mentioned john favreau who's doing it obviously has ties to the marvel universe did iron man and plays happy hogan in the in the marvel films uh and and the other guy that's huge in this is Dave Filoni, who people will know from if you watch the Star Wars, like the Clone Wars or the Rebels series. He was the the guy in charge of those. And right. I think super smart of Marvel to put those two together, Favreau and Filoni, because 
Both have a love for Star Wars. Both have great storytelling capability. And I think it's a match made in heaven. And so far, it looks like, sounds like rumors-wise, they're going to have a lot of say in future Star Wars projects, which I think is is fantastic on Disney's part. Uh, I absolutely agree. I'm, and I'm hoping uh, that they are, they're, Disney itself is looking at the feedback that they're getting globally from this and realizing I think they've got a, a pair hit on their hands. And... More than rumor, series two is already filming, so that obviously gives us something massive to look forward to, uh, you know, for whenever they release that, you know, end of next year. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned, you know, you had kind of drifted away from from Star Wars a little bit, and obviously there was such backlash over the Last Jedi, and and that hurt Solo, which is too bad because I I freaking love Solo. I think Solo is a super fun Star Wars movie. Um, I liked Last Jedi okay. I get why people have problems with it. It's a very, uh, I want to say, kind of difficult Star Wars movie because it challenges you. It's not a typical Star Wars movie, and I get that. But um, but I liked it. But I don't think I've heard a single bad thing from anyone about The Mandalorian. Absolutely not. And I've you know jumped onto a few internet web groups just to kind of see what the tempo and pulse and feel is and very few people if anything are are giving any sort of negative remarks to it it's there are those purists and then there are those elitist purists which no part of the star wars universe um is good enough for them and we can just discard those those uh opinions because they really are not they're going over the top with nitpicking and we all know they probably couldn't do a better job themselves so they should really zip it <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think I think maybe the one thing I saw is some people are are not happy that uh, they're potentially exploring Yoda and his origin in the species because obviously there's the spoilers, but the the what's been called Baby Yoda, who right. assuming it's not a clone or or whatever, is um right. is not actually Yoda. So I get that, but at the same time, you you have that with other iconic characters too. Wolverine, people threw a fit when Marvel decided to do his origin story and right. guess what it was a decent story and it didn't change the character it didn't ruin anything so right. i'm i'm all for exploring this stuff if it can lead to a good storytelling absolutely so all right just wanted to quick aside there because we're digging the mandalorian so much and, and i'm sure so many of the listeners are as well uh and hey technically we kind of tie into star wars we got harrison ford so obviously han yeah. solo rick deckard in in blade runner and uh speaking of speaking of that this movie was not a commercial success uh, in 1982 when it came out, which, considering where Harrison Ford's star was at that point, definitely on the rise. He had he had obviously done Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back in 77 right. and 80, fresh off of Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, which was a mega hit. Right. And then Return of the Jedi still to come. So he was huge at this point, but... This is, we talked about Last Jedi being a challenging movie. If people wanted a sci-fi action type movie and, and with Harrison Ford and we're going and expecting this, th- that, this is not that for sure. Right. Um, so uh, just wanted to start with kind of your, wh- what is your first experience, exposure, viewing of Blade Runner? Do you remember the first time you saw it? I do. Uh, taking us back quite a bit to the days of the video disc yet again. Um, that's, I think it may have been a birthday party or a holiday party where I ended up 
seeing it for the first time. You know, this was you know, way pre-internet, as we both know. So there was a lot of just probably an advertisement on TV that the video disc was now available. We went to the local shop in downtown Skowhegan and viewed it. And again, like a lot of those films from that time, it was way over my head at first. But over the years, as I've watched it and the improved quality of the, the video itself, in addition to, you know, the add-ons that have come about uh, over the years, I've developed a much more fond appreciation for the entire spectrum that the film um, involves. And I, and I noticed a few things last night watching it again that I um, made me think a lot more about the actual film and the premise and the... Um, other storylines and books that have interwoven that kind of maybe or maybe not inspired, but it inspired me to think in a different direction. Yeah, the, this one was an interesting for me because I remember I remember when it came out and being excited because it was Harrison Ford, uh, Han Solo, I love, Indiana Jones, I love. And I remember it coming out and didn't see it at the theater. And then I remember it coming on HBO. I didn't have HBO. I didn't have cable uh, right. until I was in like junior high. But my grandmother, who lived in, you know, the big city uh, of Winslow, uh, <laughs> had cable, had, you know, um, and did have HBO. And I remember the HBO would put send out these monthly guides that showed you what was on when. I remember I, those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember Blade Runner being on the cover and me just like studying that picture. I even remember what picture it was. It was it's Deckard, um, Harrison Ford's character, Rick Deckard, climbing up the stairs uh, at the end sequence. Yes. Um, in uh, in JF Sebastian's apartment building, right. so I but I still didn't see it then. And then you mentioned Laserdisc. I was so so my friend down the road who I spent a lot of time with, um, I would go places with his he he had single dad him and his brother. We would go places a lot, and he had a buddy that had a huge Laserdisc collection. Oh, so we right. went over there one night, and he put this on, and I'm like ten. And I just remember being bored out of my mind and like leaving the room and walking around, and <laughs> so. I didn't actually sit and watch it until CBS first put it on. And I was one of those <laughs> record from broadcast TV kids with the v with the VCR. Who wasn't? Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so I remember recording it and watching it. And then there's, there's a handful of movies, maybe seven or eight that I recorded like this and I would get home from school and my mom worked second shift. So she was like three to 11. So she was gone. A lot of times my stepdad was, away because he did construction so they'd be gone for the whole sure. week and then come back so a lot, a lot of times i was a latchkey kid i'd go home you know and, and throw something on blade runner was one of those movies we'll get to the other ones eventually road warrior yeah. was one of those um, stuff like that uh and oddly on golden pond was one that i loved as a kid that's not a bad film oh, not a a, I actually as i've as i've gotten older i've watched that more closely and that yeah that's a pretty goddamn good film <laughs> yeah yeah it's just strange for a kid to be to like it that much but anyway so blade runner became one of those that i would watch over and right. over and of course it's the tv version so some stuff stuff's yeah. cut language yep. violence stuff like that so that was the version for a long time and then the uh, the director's cut came out in 92, and I went to the movies to see that and, you know, bought the VHS. So um, it was uh, – it was, and we should mention, too, we for, for the purposes of the review, we watched the original with the voiceover, the, right. the theatrical version. So, um, yeah. so it was fun to kind of go back. And I had seen that one maybe within the last 10 years or so. Uh, but it, it had been a while, so it was fun to yeah. kind of go back and, and watch the very like the first way that people saw this movie. Um, so so yeah, so that was it for me. So uh, so I thought we'd take it through 
and um, just look at my notes, and you just pop in, Brad, when you yeah, want. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and if Brad laughs at some point, it's because we always do this on video so we can see each other. I am I, – it looks like I'm incredibly uncomfortable because to Brad – I look like I'm laid up in a hospital bed, but what it is is that I'm I'm down in our basement, got the pellet stove going, and I'm I'm on a bean bag, and I've got like a pillow propping me up, and I got the laptop on my belly, so so I'm very immobile. So that may amuse him. So. Keep that leg raised, man. Keep that <laughs> yeah. leg raised. You don't want to get yeah. swelling in the ankle. <laughs> Someone will be in to check my vitals here in a little bit. Um, but uh, anyway, so just setting the scene. So, and then, so I'm I'm comfy. Brad's in his in his apartment. He's comfy. We're good. Um, so, so one thing I wanted to talk about, like right off the bat, is the movie starts with these kind of like musical, like thudding. Is it's like the word that came to mind. And it right. to me that kind of that kind of set the tone, and it quickly goes into that. Um, the the original score was done by uh, Van Gelis. I think that's the pronunciation. I think I've heard him say that. It's Van Gelis. Um, so why don't we start? That? The score in this movie is fucking great. It, I, I, it pairs the movie just like Dune did, and almost kind of like what Morricone did for uh, the thing. It's like we're did this whole arena of films that were relating to and, and discussing the, the soundtracks really are pairing extremely well with setting, like, as you said, the tone of the film, the mood, and yeah, you know, we're, we're largely dystopian. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 I don't know. It, it's obviously, uh, done on a synthesizer, that type of thing. It's like, it's like, you know, created and constructed in that fashion, but it, it feels it's a really neat thing that that Vangelis does. It feels both futuristic and retro at the same time. Right. Yeah. It, with kind of the, there's like bells and chimes and things like that. But yeah, it's I can't say this is one that I've owned. I've owned on CD. I own this one on vinyl. It's just a great, great soundtrack. I just absolutely love it. And um, the and it ties into with like the reveal. You get like the like when things on screen happen, the music changes and you yes. get that almost right out of the gate with the, the view of the city, the big right. cityscape of LA, yeah, Los Angeles. Yeah. Which is stunning. It's a visually stunning opening. You've got the, the, the cityscape it's nighttime. The, things are lit up and there's the, these just geysers of flame shooting up everywhere. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible uh, how the, how quickly, as you said, right out from the beginning of the film, it's and the one thing I've also noticed there's there's constant movement in this film, even when some of the characters are in small spaces, either in their apartments or maybe in their, um, you know, workrooms or labs. There's just constant movement every time that we're outside. We've got crazy volumes of populations on the streets. We've got cars flying just above the street. We've got cars moving on the street. We have people. It's it's a constant movement film. And that's one of the things that I, I didn't necessarily notice the first times that I watched it. But the, the fact that there's so much movement in the film keeps the pace of everything going in a forward direction, which I thought was great. Yeah, that's a good observation. You're right. I've, I That's not something I necessarily took note of. But you're right. There is a lot of even in quiet moments there there's and maybe that makes the quiet moments even more right uh stand out more because there's not as much connect but you're right there's always something going on in the city and and in yep. the background um 
Yeah, so uh, also, too, right off the bat, we get a close-up shot of someone's eye uh, looking at the city. We assume it's Holden, the first cop that we meet, um, right. although we're not ever shown that for sure. But that's so neat because eyes are incredibly significant in this movie mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, and we'll touch on that. But um, So it starts off, we get, we get Holden. Uh, we don't really know what's going on. And it, to me... And I felt this again rewatching it, so I kind of went in being like, okay, as an adult, is does this change thing? But it didn't. To me, Holden, the, and I, I, uh, I apologize, I didn't look up the actor that played him, but uh, to me, he looks and sounds too much like Harrison Ford. I right noticed off that the too. Right. Yeah. And I had to do a double take because I was I was moving around the kitchen and I had I turned around and looked, and it sounded like Harrison Ford, but then you know because they pan over as the eye fades out and you see him kind of turning around, it's actually, yeah, you, you find out that it's the Holden, the investigator and not Harrison Ford's character. Yeah. And I, I think that's an odd choice. I mean, now obviously we know Harrison Ford in the movie and everything, but and, and it's not very well lit in that scene either. So no. I, I thought that was a little bit of a strange choice because he, he looks and sounds like Harrison Ford in that. So, um, and that always struck me. And I, so I wondered going back, I was like, all right, does he really, or is that just me being a kid? And I was like, no, he, he does. Uh, so we meet, um, uh, Leon mm-hmm. played, played by the late great Brian James, uh, always really enjoyed him and stuff. He's great in the fifth element. Um, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. But he's great in this too, and we we kind of get um, a neat start to the movie, where we're introduced to the Voigt-Kampff test, which um, tests empathy or lack thereof, which is a way to uh, detect the replicants. Um, so, and again, we're talking in real like I, I don't feel like we need to explain stuff because if, if if you're listening, I mean, hopefully you've seen Blade Runner, and if you haven't, then please go do because we're going completely right. into the movie here. You're missing an amazing part of your cultural development. <laughs> Hollywood <laughs> universe by not seeing this film, so <laughs> right. So, uh, so Leon he gets upset about the the whole um, Voight Kampff test and about his mother and all that, and the turtle, uh, which I referenced before, baking the sun, uh, shoots Holden, puts him through the wall, and then we we go back to the cityscape again. And one thing that I noticed that's um, definitely prevalent here in this version of Los Angeles in 2019. Yeah, and obviously it's not quite like this, but it's kind of the the advertising. Advertising uh, is everywhere. Everywhere, Coca Cola, TDK, um, Atari. Made, yes, Atari, yeah, it's incredible, and it's large. It it basically it's like L.A. if it was set in modern day Tokyo. Yes. But it's you know because it, the environment. It's funny because I think as we said earlier. It's always seems to be dark out. It's very, the, I think the, the the mood, the futuristic mood, the dystopian mood that they're creating. Clearly, it's always raining, which, as we know in Los Angeles, it never rains in Southern California. <laughs> right. But it's torrential downpour. Everyone, you know, the, the the rain is coming down. The people are moving on the streets, um, and the advertising. It's bright. It's it's massive. It's it's it, it's expansive, and I think that you know because because we're thrown into all these little pockets of scenarios all throughout the film, and they will pull out from those small pockets you know to carry the story forward for the broadscape landscape of of uh, of the city, the cityscape from above, and it's just incredible. Like the the um, Tyrell building is like this massive Aztec or Mayan style. Yeah, yeah it's very building. It's just yeah, it's it's it's. 
and I and I and I tie in a lot of other things when when I've been watching this. You know, I look at it as you know, LA is like kind of like from the Judge Dredd series, the uh, like a mega city. It's just this yeah. enclosed massive space of light and movement and darkness. And it's just they they did a fantastic job of not only giving us an amazing story as it moves forward, but also the widescreen pan out shots of just to see how large LA is in in their version of what 2020 would be. So yeah. And interesting that you mentioned the Tokyo feel as well. There's a very, very heavy level of Asian influence within this movie that we see oh, a lot yeah. of Asian people around the city. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of um, uh, Asian writing all right. around the city. It's yeah, it's very in uh, the food. He, I mean, he's eating noodles exactly. and, you know, far or whatever he's doing throughout the entire film. It's it's yeah, it's he's constantly at the little kiosks getting uh, sing tao. Yeah, and, and information. Totally sing tao as well. Yeah. So yeah, so um that's kind of interesting too, all the all the advertising. Um and then we get the uh the voiceover, which is kind of the uh the intro to Deckard. And I've heard and read I have I have a really good book I would recommend too. It's called um uh oh shit, I can't remember the name of it, but it's by Paul <laughs> Salmon and it's like film like Blade Runner Noir or something like that, but it's the making of Blade Runner. Uh, and it's a really good book. Um so I've, I've I think it was in there and I've also heard somewhere it attributed to Harrison Ford claiming that he hated the voiceover so tried to do it as dryly as he could so it would mm. suck. I actually think it's okay. I don't I don't hate it. I know a lot of people don't like it. Um I I think it does what it is supposed to do and that's give that film noir old school detective movie feel to it. Very so much I, I don't so. Yeah, I don't hate the the voiceover. What what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I, I think it's fine. I, and I think because it's the whole experience is gritty from start to finish. It's you never, despite the fact that it's raining, you know, LA is in modern day times. And I think it's also indicative uh, in the scenes that they're giving us. You know, it's smoggy, dirty, grimy, gritty. So I, yeah, I, th- I think they, um, the way he portrays his character is very even killed throughout the whole thing. I felt very much, even with the, um, you know, the, uh, the replicants themselves, you know, from that opening sequence when they kind of give us how everything evolved and how they got to L.A. and what the Blade Runners represent and what they have to do. Every, the, the, the dialogue is very well scripted and, you know, not over the top anywhere, but it's very well put together, you know, uh, on at all levels. Yeah, and that's right. We, we didn't mention, but there is like that... Um like a, a a screen of of text that opens yeah. the movie that explains the future and and what a blade runner is and all that type of stuff mm-hmm. so and replicants themselves the, right. the androids um so yeah that's our introduction to deckard he's uh, he's getting some food and a noodle place and um then we're also introduced uh, shortly after to edward james almost character of gaff who's a uh, another blade runner who um you can tell right off the bat does not care for deckard uh, doesn't think much of him, and he's there to summon him to go see um, Deckard, who's retired at this point, um, right. to go see their old police chief. Uh, I Edward James almost barely in this movie mm-hmm. does does a ton with the screen time, though. I think. I what do you think yeah. on it? It's funny, and and he basically from the beginning scene, uh, well, the, one of the beginning crime scenes they go to to all throughout the film. 
And yeah, another tie into the Asian world, the origami. Yeah, he's very yes. big at the origami, and that's we'll we'll tie that in a little bit. But yeah, he maximizes the his time and, and doesn't. Yeah, like you said, doesn't have a lot to say in the film. But notably, you know, I every time I see Blade Runner, I, I go back to think of other films that Edward James almost has been in, and I and and obviously Miami Vice fame as well. But I I, I look at him and those kind of the blue or the muted blue eyes that he has that are just kind of slightly unnerving because eyes do that again ties into the whole there's a lot of eyes in this film and and they play different roles for different characters yeah absolutely and he he he's got a cane he walks with a limp he has a very defined style he's got the fedora the yeah. the the you know the the thin mustache and the soul patch he right. he looks cool and you wonder more about him and he so he yeah, I was really impressed watching again with just how much he does with such limited screen time. So uh, it's good to see him. He was also great. Did you watch the Battlestar Galactica series, the reboot? He was phenomenal yes, in did. that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 he was fantastic as Adama. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so then we we go see uh, Bryant, the uh, the police chief, uh, who's played by the uh, the great M. Emmett Walsh, who who's been yep. in so many things. Um, <laughs> And uh, so that kind of sets up the story. You get he he gives the story of um, you know these there was six replicants that that escaped from an off-world colony and have come back. Uh, Holden was you know is in um, intensive care uh, from his meeting with Leon. So we we kind of get the whole thing in place here. But also it kind of gives you and that's the other thing too. I noticed in this movie, this movie does not spoon feed you anything. You have to work to understand some things. Absolutely do. Yeah. And, and one of those is just the significance of these new Nexus 6 models, the new replicants, because apparently, you know, the Voight Kampf test, fairly easy. There are probably, probably some other ways to, uh, to identify replicants. The Nexus 6 Deckard asks, you know, um, Bryant says, you know, there's right. one one over at the Tyrell Corporation. Go put the machine on it. Right. Deckard said, what if the machine doesn't work? And Bryant's face, the implications there are pretty significant because it's like, what if we can't detect these new ones? Right. And I, and I think you said typically it's about 30 questions, which was a small yes. fine point to determine. Yeah, it takes 30 questions in to get to determine if they are a replicant or not, which is that's that's quite a bit of time and quite a bit of line of questioning to get to that even that stage. So, right. Yeah. So uh, so the story is um, set in motion there. Uh, and then we get um, we get gaffes first. You mentioned the origami. We we get the first uh, origami piece from him while they're in Bryant's office. Deckard doesn't want the job. Bryant's right. essentially, you know, telling him he's got to go do this. And Gaff's first origami piece is a chicken, mm -hmm. which. <laughs> Ironically, looking, yeah. Yes. Looking he's into calling, it. He's calling him out without calling him out, basically. <laughs> yeah. Saying, saying Deckard's, Deckard doesn't, doesn't dare to take this job. So, right. um, again, a nice subtle little thing that they do with the storytelling. Um, so that sets up our first uh, visit to the Tyrell building, which you mentioned, just a massive building very impressive looking i think uh i think if i remember right from the making of stuff i think it was a model that they constructed it had to have been because the, the i mean this phenomenal scenes of you know every time I, I look at how they do it it's you know this was pre-cgi so they're doing things by hand back in the day the old school way models 
and you know the lighting of it just giving us this immense structure and then you know there's like two structures side by side i'm assuming they're probably related but we only go into one of them which is the the primary of the uh tyrell corporation's uh headquarters yeah just a, it's a, another great shot another great city shot um so we meet uh well we meet rachel mm -hmm. uh first uh who is um which we come to learn is a nexus six but you know first intro looks like she's tyrell's um assistant or something assistant, like that yeah. and we meet tyrell himself played by joe turkle uh who again not a ton of screen time he's great in this movie the, um now you may remember do you remember what what other significant small part he's had in a in a major movie oh my god i, I put you on the spot i know um and i know right. i've seen him Give, I'll me, let give me a no. Give me a quick hint. Let's see if I can do it. He's a bartender. Oh, uh, The Shining. Yes. Yep. He plays the uh, the Lloyd, the ghostly bartender. Yes. Yes. The Shining. Yeah. 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 Which he's great in that too. Again. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, he's he's really good. So we we meet Tyrell. Um, we learn that the uh, the Nexus Sixes are incredibly advanced, and that they've built in memories right. with them, which is um, pretty significant. And uh, of course, the great motto: uh, "More human than human," yes. um, which uh, Rob Zombie <laughs> used for a song later on. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the tie-ins of how this film has influenced music, both on the rock and punk side, but as well as the electronic. I would notice things now that I knew, but then it's tied it in completely. So it's, yeah, there's some phenomenal lines that are used in this film as samples in other bands music, which is just, yeah. And I caught him like amazing. Yeah. And we'll talk about it at the end. Cause this movie was incredibly influential yeah. in a lot of genres. Um, so, uh, so we, we, we find out that Rachel is a replicant. Deckard says that it took more than a hundred questions mm. for him to, to figure that out with her. And not only that, she doesn't know. Right. Uh, that she's a replicant, which is also interesting. So, so you're kind of getting things set up in place. You get a nice little intro and chemistry, early chemistry reaction between Deckard and Rachel, where it's a little bit antagonistic. Yes. Um, but you can also see there's a little bit of spark there as well. Um, so, Gaff and Deckard go to Leon's apartment and uh, begin doing some actual detective work. Um, we get Gaff's second origami, which right. do you remember what the second one was? Oh, jeez. I... Sorry. I, I, I keep putting you on well, the Well, you're going to blitz shit. me today. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's the little matchstick was... man with a huge erection. Yeah, okay. It was. So the, the sub subtext there being that, that uh, Deckard's getting excited now. He's yeah. in, into the job a little bit. And he's, um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, so the, they pick out some things. He, he finds a, a scale in the tub, a bunch of photos, which right. in the voiceover he says, you know, you know, family, family pictures, you know, replicants don't have families, that type of thing. So th that's a spot where the, I think the voiceover is helpful too. It's like, it's tying in that, all right, maybe, you know, this is probably Nexus 6, the new one. Actually, we know that already, but still. Right. Um, then we get the intro to Rutger Hauer uh, uh, as yeah. Roy Batty. No less. I was like 25 minutes and two seconds, I think, is when we first see him on screen. So that's, that's a good chunk of time for one of the main uh, antagonists to show up. That's a good point. I never thought about that, but you're right. It is a while before he's introduced. So, and and he again uh, can't say enough about his performance in this. It's so so good. Um, and uh, then Batty and Leon go to uh, the Eye Place, where we get uh, Chu, played by James Hong. Another James great... Hong of Big Trouble and Little China fame, amongst yeah. others. David yeah, Lopin, two girls with <laughs> green eyes. <laughs> 
Uh, we should do a little big trouble in little China at some point. That's such a good well, one. We will. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, great character actor, been in tons of things. Great, great, uh, actor really love seeing him and everything. Um, you get, you, you start to figure out what it is that baddie and the replicants want back right. on earth. They are trying to figure out how to increase their lifespan because we've learned that they only have like four years. Right. So they, they want whatever information they can get to, um, right. and, and Chu does the genetic work on their eyes and things mm -hmm. like that. So, um, so you get that, um, then we cut to Rachel surprises Deckard as a, at his apartment. Um, and they get a little bit of an interaction again, contentious mm -hmm. Deckard immediately starts to talk about, um, uh, memories that she has that he claims are not hers. They're Tyrell's nieces. So, so that's contentious and she leaves. Um, there's an interesting shot and I, I wonder what your take on it is. I don't know what to make of it, but as Deckard is looking at Rachel's snapshots, there's a picture of her supposedly with her mother, right. like sitting on the steps, the front steps of a house for yeah. about a half a second. That photo kind of comes to life and the shadows move within the photo. Oh, that's oh, is that is that something you haven't noticed? That. No, yeah. okay. It's super quick, but they do they move very briefly within the frame. Um, the I've not really seen anything or looked into that, but to me, I just wondered if memory is obviously a huge theme in this movie, and they play with with your own memory too, because there's several times where Deckard's rewatching the Leon and Holden scene, and they change the dialogue around. So it's not the same. So they're they're messing. Ridley Scott is purposely messing with your memory as well. So um, so yeah. So that's kind of an interesting thing that happens there. Um, with that, yeah. So next time, it, it's it's real quick. It's super yeah, quick. Because no. because that photo is seen multiple times throughout the entire film. It comes back and back and back. So that's all right. That's a good point. I have to check that. Yeah. Um, so after that, we get our first introduction to Pris, uh, played by Daryl Hannah who um, I don't think she had done a ton at this point. I don't think it's her first movie, but... I don't think... No, Splash was a couple of years off. Yeah, Splash. <laughs> yeah. Which, that's... I don't know if that should... If I should consider that a guilty pleasure movie or not. I don't know. It seems seems like maybe... But I, I still like that movie a lot. I saw it in the theater. I don't know what I was thinking oh, of myself. Did. I missed out a lot of... I did a lot of great things in theaters with watching films. <laughs> I also made some mistakes. And that, I think... Not necessarily a mistake, but I don't know... I think I was a Tom Hanks fan very early on, so. Yeah, yeah. That's not a bad movie. It's just, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I watched it fairly, well, not fairly recently, in the last few years. For a while, Netflix had all the Tom Hanks stuff, and I went back and watched a bunch of shit that I hadn't seen in years, like The Man with One Red Shoe and yep. uh, stuff like that. The Burbs, The Burbs is great. I've the watched Burbs The Burbs is an absolute classic. Love that film. <laughs> um. Anyway, we digress again. So Daryl <laughs> Hannah, uh, Pris, we get her. She's kind of, um... Looks like she's been surviving out on the street, uh, and now she has found her way. It right. looks like accidentally, but clearly on purpose, to mm -hmm. J.F. Sebastian, who we find out is a genetic engineer with the Tyrell Corporation. Uh, played by William Sanderson, of course, from uh, Newhart, Larry Darrell and Darrell fame. Larry, that's exactly where he's from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was also great in Deadwood. Did you watch Deadwood? I did watch it, yes. Fantastic in Deadwood. Yeah. So um so we get him and and you get in it we find out later that he's only 25 years old but he's he's wrinkly and we find out that he's got Methuselah syndrome so he has an advanced uh aging as well yeah. which is his you know thing he has in common with the replicants. Right. Um so 
he he invites her in and again here's another great use of music he invites her in and the music suddenly has like that almost like a a, a whining snarling type of sound a very guttural type sound and it happens right as pris's eyes kind of narrow and you're like oh okay this mm-hmm. is not because we don't know who this is we don't know if this is right. one of the replicants yet right so yeah another great use of, of the soundtrack there um uh, and he learns, so, so this is an interesting thing too. He mentions that he's in this massive apartment building by himself. So yeah. we see a lot of people on the streets, a lot of, a lot of walking traffic, but a lot of other traffic, but apparently, you know, people going to off world. And, and again, this is something the movie doesn't give to you, right. but apparently a lot of people have moved off world and there's plenty of space for everybody around. There. And there's a lot of promotion. You, there's a, actually a ship flying over the city that's telling you about get to the off world location where adventure and excitement awaits you. So, right. but what we also learn at the same point, you know, off world is where the Nexus six models, these ones that have landed in LA, um, killed their, their, guards from the planet they were on they killed the crew of the ship that they commandeered to get back that landed up somewhere in the uh, um in the ocean pacific ocean off of la so we do see the how and i and i also relate this 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 a lot of the scenes that we see in this film to um god it was the highlander two or three <laughs> uh to tie that in of the kind of the dystopian world, and I'm not sure, I don't recall, I think it might be the third one, um, where we learn what the quickening is and they go through a time portal. But it's very dystopian and darkness and so forth, so that we, we, we do get to see quite a bit of that in this film. Um, there's a lot of that actually going on in the 80s, a lot of the, you yeah. know, disturbing-looking future. <laughs> right, right, Escape from New York. Certainly yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, speaking of the off-world stuff, too, I... Um, I wanted to mention, I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, some people are, some people aren't. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Soldier with Kurt Russell? Yes. From, uh, yeah. Late 90s. Yeah. Yep. That, that movie is set in the Blade Runner universe. Oh. Unofficially. Okay. But, so when he's, there's a scene in Soldier, where, which is a good movie. I think that's super underrated. That's a good movie. Um, where there's like, dr- they're dumping, like essentially garbage type hover ships or dumping stuff. Yes. I remember them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, there is um, – I can't remember if it's something on the – I'll have to look it up. I, I think mm. there's some sort of connection to a company that's um, like dropping the ships. It's like Tyrell or something. Oh, how it's, crazy it, is that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'll have to look it up. I can't remember, but um, yeah, that's a good movie. Um, so, so yeah, so we see JF's apartment. Uh, he's clearly a genetic engineer. He's got all these crazy, like, um, automatons and, and things all over the place, uh, in this massive apartment too, which again, it goes to show that like, it's so empty that he's essentially just chosen probably the, the suite, the suite floor. Yeah. Yeah. In this, um, in this apartment building. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then uh, it cuts back to Deckard, and we get another cool piece of the futuristic tech in this movie, and that's the photo enhancement um, yeah. gadget, which is super cool. So so I have a question for you on this. So within it, he does the whole – there's that whole cool scene, which I've always loved, you know, you know, track 45 right, you know, yeah. enhance 35. That whole thing is really cool, and I've always really liked that. How do you think he gets that – photo of what we end up learning as Zora, how he takes that right. hard copy. 
do you think this machine is able to go around corners and things in a picture, or do you think he pulls her from the mirror somehow that's in the picture? That's funny you say that because I when I when I that scene popped on last night, I was thinking two two things, and I'll I'll precede, I'll get into that in just a second. The amount of detective work that Decker does in this film to track these replicants down is incredible. Based Which is funny. On, Sorry, I'm, I'm going to yeah. jump in real quick because Harrison Ford doesn't like this movie. And one of the th- quotes that I've heard from him is that he was a detective that did no detecting. I disagree. I'm with you. I think he does a lot. He does a lot. And, you know, and based on how large the cityscape is and how upwards and downwards and how crowded, for what he does to be able to track down them is phenomenal. I just, I, you know, and. I, you think about the, the, the and one individual because he's not getting any help really. He's getting you know pushed by you know his office is getting pushed by you know just the society that he's in to get this managed because I think one of the other points was the police chief basically said to him, "We need these taken out as fast as possible and as quietly as possible." Right, and he, right. It makes that as kind of a you know kind of a you need to do this asap we 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 can't because we know that uh, uh replicants are and this is from the opening scene replicants are not allowed on earth um because they're what was the terminology i think i wrote it down they're not executed they're called retired so they retire the the replicants as opposed to execution but the blade runners are ex- essentially executioners uh you know taking care of the jobs but for, back to the you know, the massively updated microfiche machine that he uses to, to pan. Um, and I, my, my first thought was, because I've seen some other films where mirrors were used and then they see reflections. Um, that was my first assumption because it, he was able to angle it around the mirror to kind of see her ultimately lying on the bed and kind of he was able to identify the, the snake tattoo on her neck. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it – he um, – it was definitely the reflection of the mirror or his critical eye. Again, critical eye where there's another theme of him analyzing a screen using his eyes and he actually sees something. But I do I definitely think it was the mirror. But somehow the machine is able to bend the image to get what he needs to see her yeah. line. She's not de- She's definitely not on screen initially. Right, right. Yeah, that it's a, that's <clears throat> always I've always wondered what that technology is. But yeah, yeah. Good, good catch by you about his eye, you know, and him being able to to scope that out mm-hmm. um so based on that now that now that he's got a little bit more information he's got a, a picture that he can take he goes to um what's called animoid row and uh we see like a sign there's like a sign with like a big fish um with the middle part is like almost flipped up like a like a compartment on a you know on a, on a piece of equipment you see wires and stuff inside right. this is another part of the movie where if you've read the book it makes total sense. If you haven't, you only have the one line from uh, Rachel, Sean Young's character, previously, where the owl is at the Ty- Tyrell building, and right. she asks him if he likes it, and he says, you know, is it artificial? And she says, of course. Right. So animals, because of the poor air condition on Earth, right. many of them have gone extinct. And so it's a status symbol to own mm-hmm an artificial creature that's not expressly laid out in the movie. No, not at all. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. It's definitely not because we, as we will soon see, you know, the snakes and the, he seems like an Egyptian vendor of exotic animals. Right. And 
we learn very quickly that you know that they are in fact replicant creatures, great yeah. and small. Yeah, exactly. And we get and and <clears throat> while Deckard's walking around on Animoid Row, we see all these crazy things. There's like ostriches go by and yeah. all kinds of crazy shit. So, yeah. um, and then he he does he goes to um, uh, to talk to Abdul Hassan. Um, oh, and he gets the he gets the the snake scale, uh, which he thought was a fish scale. Yeah, identified. Um, yeah, identified. Which is that that's a continuity thing that they fin- fixed in the final cut that always bothered me. When she reads the serial number, it is clearly not the number that is on. Oh, the screen. that's that's a really good point because I, they because they screenshot back and forth as she's reading it, and yeah, they, there was like a B listed, and they're like, there's yeah. not there's no B in that number. <laughs> like, yeah. <what? laughs> yeah. So um, so he goes to talk to Abdul Hassan. Um, who, um, you know, deals in like snakes and, and uh, stuff like that. And speaking of continuity, this is one that they fixed in the final cut that I was so glad they fixed the, the voice and the lips and everything that's happening when Deckard goes in to see Abdul Hassan and he like pulls him up by his tie and right. he's like, Harrison Ford's talking and it's not his voice. Like his, it's, it's, awful and it always drove me crazy <laughs> so they fixed that one in in the final cut they actually if this was really cool how they did it they got harrison's one of harrison ford's sons to come in and do like the lips and then they like put those lips on it and like made it all match now so <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of the wild. reasons i we'll talk about it later but that's one of the reasons i love the final cut this is the exact opposite of lucas mucking around with shit this is ridley yeah. scott going in and saying here are things that are broken that right. need to be fixed. Right. Um, so, and there's other ones I'll talk about um, as we go along. But anyway, so so he gets um he gets Taffy Lewis's name, um and uh, so he goes and goes to Taffy Lewis, finds him in this bar, um, and uh, I, this is kind of a strange exchange here, where Taffy Lewis like gets him a drink and. Right. doesn't really give him any information. I, what, what's your take on that yeah, whole exchange? He, he was very passive-aggressive because you know, the line of questioning Deckard was hitting him up with were, were, were things that Deckard kind of already knew what the answers were going to be. He knew he had the right person. Uh, he just didn't know exactly where that link was going to take him. But yeah, he was completely passive-aggressive. He drinks the drink. He's, you know, and again, he, in a city as massive as this, this Los Angeles 2019 in their time, uh, is able to get to the club fairly easily and sits beside him, kind of gives him a line of, uh, line of questions, you know, trying to further his investigation to get closer to tracking down the next Nexus 6 model. Yeah, which we learn is is Zora, who is working right. there as a as a dancer uh, with her snake. Uh, he also makes a quick phone call to uh, to Rachel uh, mm-hmm. to ask her to come down there. She she declines. Um, another one of the like prophetic future type things. It's like a video phone. Yeah. Uh, you and I are essentially using the same thing right now. Exactly. Yep. Which, which is kind <laughs> of neat. Um, Irony of. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So uh, so that was kind of cool. So. Um, so Deckard then goes in, like in the backstage area at the club, to uh, to try and see if he can get some information out of Zora, um, and uh, poses as like sort of this nerdy like investigator, which is kind yeah. of what, what's your take on his choice of uh, like a, doing a, a character there? He he totally and, and there's a couple points in his conversation with Zora that he breaks out of the voice and kind of goes into his own voice. I'm like he, I, he doesn't commit. Yeah. <laughs> 
He's like, yeah, well, um, have you, uh, do you mind if I check the, uh, check your room here for, for, for uh, holes in the wall? Because, you know, there, there, are there any abuses? So he's takes a very unique angle, um, to try to, you know, gain information from her. I, I think he believes based on, you know, his initial interaction, he's found his target. Um, but now he's just trying to discreetly figure out how to manage the situation. And I think, you know, uh, and then another thing that they mentioned in the, that opening credit scene, which I think is important, that the replicants themselves are as intelligent, if not more so, than uh, their creators. Yeah, and except you, Leon. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, although Leon did ask a lot of questions about, uh, you know, yeah, that's the hotel I stay at. Yeah, you know, he was, you know, is that, why is this question important? So he was on the lower scale of the intelligence yeah. factor, which I makes think, you wonder. <laughs> yeah, and actually I think when it shows, when Brian is going over everything, I think it rates all of their physical and mental acuities, and I think he's like a C. Like, like to bad, he's like A. I think it actually right. shows that. Right, um, right. He's more the brawn than the brains. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, so again, another thing with like uh, Decker choosing to do this character, I think he also kind of is attempting to come off as non-threatening too, and a yes. little nebbish, and you know. So right. um, I think that because knowing that these are, um, I don't want to say they're battle droids, but, but she was a pleasure model, wasn't she? Or was it? Or was that uh, Chris, Chris? Was Chris I, pleasure model? It wasn't. It was because they basically said. Uh, Leon was a loader. Ray yeah. was the kind of, I don't know, not quite assassin soldier. Um, Pris, pleasure model. But Zero, I, as we know, was... She, I think she's an assassin. I think they said she was trained for an off-world uh, kicks murder it. kick squad or something like Got that. Got it, okay. So so yeah. basically, her her detective skills and, you know, ability to detect, um, you know, bullshit, which, uh, which her <laughs> right. character was pretty much trying to mask himself, but... There was at one point in the conversation when they're within inches of each other and he loses his nerdy voice and goes back to his normal Deckard voice, which I thought was strange because he and then he reverts into the nerd voice again. So I thought that was a slight break in his character, which it may have been at that point she realized he was a complete fraud and she had to try to take him out. Yeah, and uh, oh, we should mention uh, Joanna Cassidy uh, is yes. Zora. She does a nice job. Again, very very little to work with, but she does a great job. Right. Um, is, so she she is on to him. She um, you know distracts him by asking him to towel her off, and then she, um, right. she elbows him and starts to strangle him. One of the things that I love about Deckard in this movie is that. He is not this is not action hero superhero level cop. He's he's frequently in danger of being killed and it's not even close. Like she's oh. she's about to strangle him to right. death until the dancers enter the room and break up the moment. So yeah. Yeah, he's, he's done. You're right until they're she's distracted and, and starts to run. Right. Um so we get the great I I think this chase through the city is and it's not long and it's on foot, but I I think this is a really really good scene. I just really love this scene. It's very tense. Um, you get again the the claustrophobic feel of the city and the streets right. being packed. Um, wait, yeah. What what are your thoughts on the chase? Yeah, story? I mean, th- there's never a point in this movie where you don't feel claustrophobic, even in the open space. In um, even in the wider open spaces, it's. It may be barren, but you also feel claustrophobic as an individual because you're walking into unfamiliar surroundings. Um, but the chase scene is quite remarkable for as 
densely populated those streets are. You, you get to see punks. You get to see, as we know, Hare the, Krishnas. <laughs> yeah, Hare Krishnas, the, the, the Asian vendors, people carrying umbrellas. It's downpouring again. So it's this never-ending cycle, as I alluded to earlier, of constant movement in the film. You know, we've got traffic going on foot both directions. We've got cars. We, we hear conversations in the background. It's dingy. It's dark. It's rainy. And again, he's, you know, tracking this Nexus 6 model who basically is, is in her heels running very fast for a very congested city, which is super impressive. <laughs> right. And uh, also the, the, the soundtrack here, you touched on it there. Uh, not not the soundtrack, sorry. The, uh, the background ambiance. I think really adds to the tension in this because you get the 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 audible um, crossing, uh, you know, animation the you know whatever whatever it is that does that same you know cross now cross right. now right right it's that kind of monotone thing droning on and you get like sirens in the background. There's yeah. all these great noises during the chase scene that I think really heighten the tension. Right. It's yeah, you know, and I and I think they you know for what they did as a you know, condensed scene, because that's probably just a small set taking shots from different angles, and you get this feel that they're going s at least several blocks in the chase to try to hit him chasing her. Yeah. Uh, then he, he finally gets a clear shot at her, um, back shoots her a couple times. Right. She crashes through these plate glass windows into, like, some sort of display, like a, right. a store display where it's snowing. Yeah, um, like a holiday display. <laughs> yeah. Again, something else they fixed in the final cut the 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 stunt double, the body double that crashes through the plate glass, could not have been a worse choice. She clearly has dark curly hair, looks nothing like Joanna Cassidy, and several times you can see the blood trigger, the bulb thing held in her hand with the wire going up under the raincoat. <laughs> yeah, so they they fixed that. They actually brought Joanna Cassidy back in like thirty years later or whatever to to do that. Uh, so in the final cut, they fixed that. Um, cool. Yeah. So um, so so you get that. Uh, yeah, that's that's Zora uh, being retired, um, and then you get another continuity error that again they fixed in the final cut, where in this version. You see, so you you see, um, Rachel uh, yep. has seen this, and you see yep. Deckard. Deckard has uh, this is what it is. He goes and talks to Brian. You can yep. see Deckard is already beat to shit after meeting Leon, except he hasn't yet. He's got a big cut over his, That's by a good his point. eye. Yes. And the whole point of them altering that was because of Bryant's line, where he says, "There's four more to go." And right. Deckard says three. Right. Well, what happened was they mentioned – didn't they mention six in the uh, – Initially and, in – And one or... got fried. Right. There was I... a whole other one named Mary that had a subplot that they completely okay. cut out of the movie. Okay. So the final cut fixes that by just overdubbing M.M. at Walsh with the correct number. So, okay. Um, right. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> so we find out that, that Rachel has gone missing from the Tyrell right. Corporation. So now she's essentially a target. Right. Um, and then this is where he runs into Leon, who right. again, Leon is within inches of killing him. Yes. Um, and, well, and also, too, again, as large, and I keep going back to this, as large as the city is, Leon just happens. I had a little trouble with that. The fact that Leon just happens to be in proximity to where Zara and he have their final interaction. You know, he basically stumbles onto him 
even though it, it, we, we, you could probably work it as he maybe he was watching out for her, maybe he was kind of bodyguarding on, on his distance. way to pick her up or something yes. like that to meet in up. In which with case, him. notice the, the the commotion and so forth. But yeah, he and one of the lines, you know, wake up, time to die. That is used in one of my favorite bands uh, from the early '90s, strange enough, called Therapy from Northern Ireland. They use that sample uh, to one of their songs, and that's you know just a phenomenal line itself because that just goes how violent he becomes very quickly as he throttles him up against the the trucks uh, that are are in that are in proximity to them. Yeah, and he, he has another great line there too. It's like it's a uh, uh, it's a terrible thing to to live in fear. Right. Too. That's what it's, that's what it is to be a slave. Right. Um, yeah, great line. Uh, yeah, knocks away Deckard's gun, uh, punches his fist through the truck, right. slams Deckard into a car, and is is literally about to put his fingers through his eyes. Right. When Rachel rescues Deckard by shooting, has recovered Deckard's gun, right. shoots and kills Leon. Um, right. So um, then uh, we go back to Deckard's apartment and we get it, it, there's a, there's a good scene where and again, a subtle thing that they do. We see Deckard taking a, a sip of booze from like a little shot glass and blood fills the uh, the glass from his right. mouth, which is kind of cool. And then he's like rinsing his mouth out. We can see he's taking quite a beating. Rachel is quite upset because she's just killed, you know, even though it's a replicant. She's right. you know, she she's just killed yeah. someone. Yeah. Um, and they have that, you know, great interaction where, you know, Deckard says it's part of the business. And she says, you know, I am the business. Um, great. She's the realization, the acceptance that she's a, a replicant. Yes. Is there um, with her finally. Um, and then you get a, a really uncomfortable scene as she's trying to leave and he's forcing himself on her. Yeah, I, no, I noticed that. For the first time now, in the cu- the culture that we're currently living in, and how that's never been accepted, but it's I felt a little uncomfortable watching that because he was definitely getting forceful and aggressive with her, and we know the times that we're living in, and you, that's come up absolutely unacceptable. So yeah, that was a really good point. You bring that up. Yeah. 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 And I had kind of forgotten how that scene played out. So mm-hmm. yeah, seeing it and viewing it through a, a modern lens, right. I yeah, it was it was very uncomfortable. Um, so uh, so then we, we skip to J.F. Sebastian's apartment again, and Batty shows up. Right. So Roy has, uh, Rutger Hauer's character has come finally to meet up with Pris. Uh, J.F. is immediately, as he should be, frightened and concerned and... out of his mind you can you can see it on that's the one thing i noticed the facial expressions in this film roy is very as intelligent as he is and how methodical as he is as an assassin robot you know he his facial impressions and his facial countenance never quite deviates as does his the lines he delivers he's very much muted very on par very careful with his word choices on and what his objectives are yeah, yeah, great point. Yeah, you're right. He uh, he pl- he plays that very well. Uh, so they they go to see uh, Tyrell, and uh, you I I really like the scene in the apartment there when when Batty shows up and, and you get that interaction with JF and and JF's kind of teaching him chess too and, yes. and showing him different things there and they kind of have that exchange about you know what. What are these? What are, are you know? Betty has that line. We're not computers, Sebastian. We're physical. 
Um, so the, that whole thing, that's a really nice exchange there. I, I really like that scene. Um, they, they go to see Tyrell. Uh, th- this scene to me, like acting wise, is probably the pinnacle of the movie to me with B- Batty and Tyrell's interaction where he and it starts off with that great line, I want more life, fucker. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, their whole interaction is great. It, it doesn't, it does like scientific jargon. And from what I've heard, a lot of that is real scientific stuff that they're, they're talking about like, um, you know, alkali agents and all that type of stuff sure. that's way over my head. Um, but it's a very, it's a smart scene. Their back and forth banter is really good. And then you get just some great lines like, you know, can the, um, you know, can the maker undo, you know, what is made and, you know, the, the candle that burns twice as bright burns burns half half as long, just some, some phenomenal back and forth in this scene. And it was at this point that it, it hit me for the first time that how, how closely related this is to, you know, a father, son, mentor, mentee. And Frankenstein, you know, he basically was involved with creating, you know, Tyrell created uh, Roy Batty's model in his possible likeness. That's debatable. But how Frankenstein wants to be normalized and wants to be human and wants to have, you know, relationships and have longevity. And he the same thing happens when the monster meets Dr. Frankenstein, kind of a similar uh, interaction. And that finally, I don't know why it hit me so many years later. But I think they did a really good job indirectly of the kind of Prometheus fire in life, basically. Yeah, yeah. Or Lucifer is the fallen angel, you know, yeah. pro- prodigal son. There's a lot of Christ allegory yeah. um, as well within it. Um, yeah, and, and uh, so the scene culminates with um, Batty kisses Tyrell on the lips and then essentially crushes his skull. Right. Um, and I believe in the, and again, tying back into eyes, I believe he pokes his eye, puts his like fingers through his puts eyes his too. Right through his eyes. Yeah. 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 So obviously a disturbing scene. We see, we don't see what happens to JF, but we see him start to run away. He, he, and, it's, he, he, and it's funny you said because, because Roy's like, come here. He's so calm as he is like JF is running away through, you know, having, he was observing from slightly afar, you know, the murder of Tyrell. And then next thing you know, come here. He's very calm as he's, it's like a serial killer chasing his prey. I know yeah. where you're going. You can't run away from me. So yeah, that was creepy. They did a really good job of that. Yeah. And, and also again, a great uh, use of the music, the music in here, it's subtle as the scenes going on and slowly starts to rise and then really culminates when uh, Batty is killing Tyrell. Right. Uh, so it, yeah, again, just a really nice use of soundtrack there. Uh, uh and then you get that scene too, right after he's he's killed Tyrell and Sebastian, of Batty riding in the elevator down. The lights are flashing. It's a very <laughs> it looks really cool, and he has kind of this reaction. And I I wanted to get your take. What you think? His like he he he. I can't even describe it. He makes sort of like a face, almost, and his eyes change. And he's he has sort of I don't know if it's a realization or about what he's done or that he's he's has no hope now. Or what's your take on on I, that elevator part? It's funny because you know he once in the dialogue with Tyrell, the scientific you know jargon that they were using, you know, you know, Roy was hitting him with all the points that he was hoping to get a, a positive answer on how to extend his life, and Tyrell came back matching those with scientific evidence. Well, that that catalyst or that equation wouldn't work because of this. So 
it was the back and forth. So when he assassinates him and kills him, ultimately, that was kind of the point where he realizes it's he's on a one way trip at this point. There is no hope to extend his life. So I think in, in the elevator, the scene where he might have had the, you know, the the A.I. revelation that, you know, his his timeline has an end point. He doesn't have any hope. He killed his creator. The science that he that uh, was what he was made aware of through his conversations uh, earlier in the film are non-existent. They're not possible to give him what he needs. So his endpoint objective is to kind of take out the points that got him there. So now he's just kind of backtracking, and the realization is that he there is no future hope for him. He's basically his clock is ticking, and he from what we soon learned, doesn't have a very much long, longer time to live. Right. Right. Gotcha. Uh, all right. So, um, so then Deckard starts to, uh, we get kind of into the, the, the final act as, as Deckard goes to JF Sebastian's apartment building. Um, great atmospheric stuff as Deckard is climbing the stairs because you've got, again, nice, like almost a little bit of a spooky tone of the music. The atmosphere is is great. You've got the strobing lights coming through the windows as he's climbing the stairs. Right. I really love that scene. It, it kind of sets the stage really well. And uh, did you have anything to say on that? The, well, yeah, and that stairwell scene, you know, because that was one of the initial ones, uh, the pictures that you remember seeing when you were a kid, it, it seems like it's forever him getting up that stairwell. And, you know, he's obviously proceeding with caution. He's got his gun drawn and, you know, not knowing specifically what he's walking into. And he essentially walks into, you know, a playground slash science lab that Sebastian had created for his entertainment. So he, his, his, him being fully on guard and like the lighting on the inside is slightly subdued, like you said, compared to what's coming in from the outside, the flashes, the strobes, the city that's alive outside. Now he's kind of in a microcosm of that, walking into, you know, perilous danger, which he doesn't know to what level at the stage. Right, right. And, and you mentioned the scene when he gets into uh, Sebastian's apartment. We've already mm -hmm. seen it, but we yes. it, it's shown as even more unnerving because he's got, like, all these mannequins and automatons, yeah. and there's one of them that's, like, cackling. And yes. Pris has made herself up to look like one and put like a veil over her face and she's sitting incredibly still. Uh, I thought that was really well done. It's a very unnerving um, and, and spooky scene and tone because again, you've got the music, you've got the lights, there's, it's, it's dim in there, but we get the flashes from outside right. and it, there's all this weird, weird shit in there that, and, that Sebastian and, has and, put and together. And to that point, because we, as you said, we do see Pris, you know, sitting in a very stationary position to kind of blend in. Just prior to her doing that, they do some more very close, close-ups on her face and her eyes and she almost seems to know or here, somehow she detects someone is coming. It's not really clear because Deckard, as he enters the building, is fairly quiet as he opens the door. He's proceeding up the stairwell very cautiously. Um, but And they keep going back and forth to her. So she clearly either has some awareness setting or something that where she was it brought to her attention that she needs to, she's going to be taking action very soon and had to kind of, like I said, blend into the rest of the characters and the... Uh, um, inside the, the kind of the main menagerie room, if you call it that. Yeah. 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 That's a good point too. You're right. She does. She does seem to know even Something before he, 
Yeah. yeah. They obviously end up face to face, but you're right. She definitely does. And she has that kind of interesting scene where she's to the side and then her head whips around like super fast too. As yes. Well. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, Deckard sees Pris and kind of pulls the veil off and then he's uh, attacked. And again, he's, he's real close to dying again. She's, she's choking him out. She's, yeah. um, she's got her fingers in his nostrils. She's like boxing his ears. Right. Um, and she, for, for a whatever reason, droid, she's pretty goddamn good at assassination <laughs> techniques. I mean, my God. Yeah, yeah, but still doing them in a sensual way, right? Like Very wrapping sensual. his head between her legs. Legs, right. <laughs> uh, for some reason, though, she disengages and like flips away from him, allowing him a chance to to shoot her. Yes. Uh, so she's flipping towards him. He gets off a shot, uh, hits her pretty much like through the the stomach or back, right. and then she's throwing this like tantrum. Her, yeah, really. the, her death scene. Was probably Unnerving. the most violent one of yeah you know, of of the uh, of the replicants. I mean, she was throttling like a vampire that's just been stabbed and not <laughs> wanting to die. I'm like, she was crazy. <laughs> yeah, that one's that one's a little disturbing because then he she's she's like having this you know reaction on the floor, yeah. and he just he just shoots her again, right. and um yeah, so that's uh that's yeah that's that one's a little that one's a little tough. Uh, so. Batty shows up. He's a little bit late arriving, um, which also made me think about for the first time watching this again, the the timing of that. So he's clearly Batty has left from killing mm-hmm. Tyrell. Right. Yet there's been enough time for Tyrell and Sebastian's bodies to be recovered because that's how Deckard ends up at Sebastian's is because of the police on scene are right. reporting to him. Right. So so it makes me wonder time wise, where's Batty? Is that a little bit of maybe a Something yeah. in the in the script that's a little bit of an you know a little bit of a mistake where yeah. time wise you know that's what's a great happened point there because you know even if Ro- from when Roy left the uh, Tyrell Corporation building there is quite a bit of time you know, that, yeah that that is a good point you know there's no there's a kind of I think a gap in continuity because if he left right there and went right back how did Decker know to get there before him how did Decker get there ahead of him yeah yeah right so um. So Batty does show up. He knows something's wrong. He finds Pris's body, uh, and then he begins to taunt Deckard. Um, has that great scene where he smashes through the wall, yeah. grabs Deckard's gun hand, pulls it through, takes mm-hmm. the gun away, and breaks two of his fingers. Yeah, uh, and then gives the gun back and sticks yeah. his face right through there. Something that's really cool, and I think is is maybe a a hint that that Batty's lifespan is running out and he's not as sharp is that he when he gives the gun back to Deckard and puts his face in the hole he's like you got to be quick and so Deckard puts the gun and blasts him right. and you think it's okay and then you see the shot of Batty and he turns and like his ears blown off yes like he's all blind so Deckard got a piece of him right yeah that's that's a really good point I think that maybe his Roy's circuitry or however his lifespan was starting to peter out and although he still had the defensive hunting capabilities uh, as an assassin droid, if we will, um, perhaps he was, in fact, starting to slow down a bit. Well, I think we get evidence that he absolutely is because he has that theme where he's he's having a hard time controlling his hand and he puts the, the big spike through it Yes, to kind of take control again. Right. Um, but Deckard wisely flees. He's running again, not superhero action cop. He is Realizing running for his he's life. out of his league very quickly. <laughs> yeah, and is now injured. Um, you know, his his gun hand. Um, 
so they they have this great chase through the building, which is aside from where Sebastian lives, appears to be completely abandoned. Right. Um, Deckard actually goes out onto the ledge, which I'm desperation, I guess. So that doesn't seem like the best right. idea. Not best idea. He was he was out of options. Clearly went through the window. And yeah, it was, it's all downhill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Almost literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Deckard ends up on the roof and uh, thinks he might've, you know, gotten away, starts to maybe take a run to jump to the next, um, or, or to head down or whatever. And Batty comes up. Right. And so Deckard turns, runs and makes a jump to the next building across the, the alley and barely catches on, uh, to like a girder and is, yep. is in trouble. Batty jumps across, um, and this is something I never noticed for the longest time, but I've been more aware of it over the last maybe decade or so, is that at, so Deckard is hanging on, mm-hmm. broken fingers and all, right. to this girder. He's going to die. He's, he's about to drop. He's got one arm left holding on. As he's about to go, he spits at Batty, like uh-huh. one more defiant act like have you ever noticed that he no i think i missed i'm gonna have to check that out again no i I think i missed that yeah he's about to fall and he just he just musters up one he just spits right at him his last bullet (laughs) yeah his his last fuck you um (laughs) drops batty grabs him grabs him um with the hand with the nail in it too so i was wondered if that's like and again christ allegory there with the nail right. in the hand but if he if he like actually the nail goes through Deckard too I wonder because he grabs him with that hand right. um pulls him up saves him um and then we get the the great Roy Batty like soliloquy speech mm-hmm. there at the end Amazing. um which is so good which apparently Rutger Hauer uh ad-libbed uh and improbbed about I read that now. yeah that and that uh and there are other points that he talks about. I think, you know, I've seen things you've n- never seen. Um, attack ships. What was it? Attack. Do you have it? Attack ship. It's a, uh, well, and again, tying back into the eye symbolism, yeah. he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Mm. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Yeah. You know, s- stuff like that. I've seen yeah. sea beams glitter at the Tannhauser gate. Right. Um, all these moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Right. It's time to die. Yeah, it's just a, it's it's so good, um, and I I think a really it's an interesting ending. It's almost an anticlimactic ending, but I think it fits perfectly in what this movie is as a whole. Incredibly, yeah. I mean, because as as I talked about earlier, he's very spot on with his his dialogue. He's very poetic for what I would consider an android to be. You know, he definitely has the killer emotions and the attack regimen built into his, in his system. But he's also, his lines that he delivers are hugely intelligent, very poetic, dark, uh, kind of hard hitting. And, and as Deckard is sitting across from him in the pouring rain and just kind of, you know, going through the range of emotions of almost falling, you know, falling off the building, almost getting killed to now having this, you know, literally feet apart, discussion and him just kind of going you know Deckard completely went reflective in that moment you know I think he was thankful that he's alive but at the same point he you know the lines that Batty delivered to him just struck him as you know these are replicants but their human qualities are kind of almost enough to why are we hunting them he was almost seems like he was in retrospective thought of I am a hunter who became the hunted who's now 
sitting across from his prey and now is going back over kind of why kind of why why have I done this based yeah, on the, the morality of it yeah right yeah uh so yeah batty batty dies uh gaff shows up and uh tells him you know you've done a man's job and uh you know it's too bad she won't live referencing right. rachel referencing um rachel. Yeah, so and then we get the the quote unquote happy ending that um, yes. Ridley Scott was was forced to tack on, which does not exist in any other cuts. In the other cuts, um, Deckard goes back to his apartment, finds Rachel. They start to leave because they know they'll be hunted, and the elevator closes, and that's the end of the movie. Right. In in this one, we get the them driving somewhere out in the country, yes. which another tie to The Shining. That was a whole bunch of B roll shot. Um, the all the landscape stuff is from The Shining. Oh. Okay. Um, Nice. From the opening scene when they're driving, when when Jack's yeah. driving up to the Overlook, um, but then you get the voiceover saying, "Oh, you know, Rachel was special. She's built with no uh, no incept date. I don't know how right. long we have. Blah blah blah." Right. So, to me, now Ridley Scott has always said, and he put stuff in the director's cut that that make it pretty clear that Deckard is a replicant. The the unicorn origami, the last piece showing that Gaff had been there yes. uh, and let her live. So yeah. that's obviously significant in the director's cut, but I, I don't – do you have any guess on the significance of the unicorn in this cut if he's not a replicant? I, that's, I Maybe honestly, that she's unique because she doesn't have an incept date? Usually when, I, when, I, when he had the – that – when you see the unicorn initially on screen, um, yeah, no, that's a good point. I'm, I'm you know, trying to think about that a little bit. I, the u- uniqueness of her, the fact that – she is not like the others. You know, she, uh, while the other ones were, were technically have their programming and end date and a streak towards violence, Rachel was anything but that. She was kind of, you know, she was self-aware but didn't realize that her, her dreams were implants. And maybe that's kind of like a, a naive innocence on, on her part that she was built not to be like the others, that she's not the same as the others, that she has different beneficial qualities um, as a replicant who didn't know she was a replicant. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, good points there. Um, yeah. So, so for me, this movie was for a long time, was one of my favorite movies, you know, probably top two or three for me, um, probably through my twenties, I would say uh, it's dropped a little. Um, I still enjoy it a lot and, and I still like a lot about it, but um yeah, I don't know. For for some reason, there's some parts that are that just I don't know that have, have made it a little more problematic for me now. But um, but I still really enjoy it. And and something that we were going to talk about is how influential this movie was on. Um, you mentioned music, but yeah. so many movies, atmosphere wise. I just remember seeing movies after and thinking, like The Crow is a good example. Yes. I just remember seeing the cityscape of Detroit and The Crow and thinking, this is Blade Runner. This is the, like. The, the cityscape in The Crow, the rain in The Crow, yeah. it's very much. And I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, you know, the Highlander around that roughly the same time. So a lot of these, you know, the Judge Dredd, which is later on, not the Stallone one, the other one. Um, yeah. uh, it's very much so the, I think directors who are coming up with these films that are, you know, as we've, we seem to have a theme running with uh, movies that are, end up becoming real cult classics after the fact. Yes. The, that it's almost like the audience is not at the level where the director is. And over time 
the audience follows suit and finally gets on yeah. board with understanding. So it's like the film is larger than people's what we can conceive as being uh, a pleasurable experience to watch. But this this film clearly uh, the atmospheres, uh, atmospheres, the music, the acting, everything was almost done scientifically to to the point and not lines weren't not overspoken you know emotions were not over the top everything was very almost almost clinical to the fact that it's you know what makes it such a good sci-fi movie yeah it's we're in a world where you know clearly hardship exists in different forms it's overcrowded it's dark there's pollution um but yet the characters themselves are in their own worlds mixing between you know humans and replicants and trying to move forward in a very uh unhealthy time yeah yeah and i yeah i think you're right definitely a movie that was ahead of its time uh oh dark city is another one that comes to mind as far as pulling atmospherically from it um so yeah it's certainly hugely influential so some of the music stuff that you touched on, where, what are some of the other like musical things that you think people put? Um, let's see, a lot, a lot of, you know, for and how do we how do we pronounce it? Is it Vangelis? Vangelis okay. is, is what I've I always said okay. Vangelis, but I, yeah, I think too. I think okay. I heard somewhere an interview with him where it's it's Vangelis. Oh, that's it correctly. Okay, so um, there, I'm trying to think of the bands off the top of my head that there, there's a label. Um, out of the UK, I don't think it longer exists, by this band Alternate. They spell it A-L-T-R-N hyphen eight. And almost all their songs have eights in it. They're, it's a kind of hard-hitting, hard-hitting kind of acid techno. And their label was Nexus 6. So that was oh, yeah. tie-in. Um, other, I always I, thought that would be a great name for a band, too, Nexus I'm, 6. I'm, sure, I'm surprised it isn't. Yeah, um, probably I is think, somewhere. I think, you know, as some of the other lines in the movie, the, the one uh, Roy delivers at the end there um, is very much uh, that's used in, I think, an ambience track or, or like you hear it floating in the background. So the, it's definitely, you know, clearly um, I follow a lot of people on social media, artists that I listen to, and a lot of times they'll post stuff that, you know, scenes from movies or clips of their music, and you can see how that has influenced that this film alone the original the original version even with all its kind of plot gaps and and, and inconsistencies influenced them to a level to kind of make their art unique and distinct as well yeah yeah and i i mentioned before the the rob zombie track more human and human which is clearly about it even says you know i am the nexus one yes Uh, i want more life fucker i'm not done right Uh, that's all in there clearly clearly from this movie um yeah so yeah certainly certainly left an impact with a lot of creative people, whether yes. it's movies or, or music or what yeah. have you, mm-hmm. uh, even comic books, there's, there's definitely influence. Um, you know, uh, Transmetropolitan. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. No. That's a dystopian. You would love that one. You should check that one out. Um, yeah. Dystopian future, uh, setting. Um, so yeah, de- definitely one with a lot of cultural impact and and not appreciated at the time. As I said, was not a f- uh, commercial success, um, and the very definition of a of a cult classic of it, you know, coming back around and being discovered later by people and and being heralded uh, by people. And uh, also, we we watched the thing. This is, what, do you, what do you got there? Oh, Decker. Decker. This uh, as a band. Uh... From that that came out of the ashes of uh, a Scottish band, Baby Chaos. But uh, this is uh, their first two albums, and good kind of 
indie pop stuff from back in the 90s. But clearly, that name didn't pop out of anywhere. <laughs> well, and you've got the on the one cover there, you've got the eyes, the close-up on the two yeah. eyes as well. Yeah. Interesting. So a little, a little interesting little factoid tidbit there for you. Cool. Oh, I was saying, yeah, this is another one from 1982. Uh, 1982, huge movie for me personally. A ton of my favorite movies are there. We will absolutely do more from there because at some point we'll do my favorite movie, which is Conan the Barbarian, which is from 82. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of great movies from 82. And this one, very much like The Thing, also from 82. Right. Uh, not appreciated at the time, but mm -hmm. now is looked upon as, as a masterpiece. And I, right. I think that's what you have here with Blade Runner as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, that was super fun. I, I thought it was a good opportunity since it was November 2019 to, to take a look at it. Um, anything else you want to say about the movie, Brad? No, or, I, I just, it? The, having discussed this quite thoroughly today, I'm actually going to go back and check a few of those points you told me about, especially the uh, the moving shadows in the picture. Yeah. Uh, see that again, because I think I, I definitely did miss that. I was watching it as intently as possible, but that was a, a nuance that I clearly missed. Yeah, it's super subtle, but it's, it's there. Um, and it took me... It took me noticing it a long time ago and then like training myself to watch for what happens. Right. And yeah, it's literally just the very brief, subtle shift of the shadows in the picture. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely one that's worth revisiting. And that's what's great, too. And that's that's why movies like this, I think, stand the test of time is that I've seen this movie dozens of times. I, I still catch things um, that I've not seen before. So. Uh, and I would say definite plug for the final cut if, you, if you're going to go out and buy this movie. Um, because like I said, does not muck around with things like Lucas with the Star Wars movies just for the sake of doing it. It corrects continuity. It, cor it fixes errors. It cleans things up. Uh, it just it does a nice job of making a definitive version of this movie. Right. So awesome. Well, thank you, sir. That was fun. That was fantastic. It's a great way to spend a Sunday morning. You uh, damn right it is. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back next month and next time since it's December and we're thinking about Christmas. Brad and I thought it would be fun to do some of the top Christmas toys. Like what were the huge toys from the years 80 to 89? And we obviously already talked about Star Wars toys on the show and we will at some point do a nice real vigorous uh jump into gi joe which is near and dear to both of our hearts so so you know we'll talk about them some but mostly i wanted to take a look at like because uh, there were a lot of fad things and, yeah. and stuff that came and went so brad and i are going to talk about did we have these toys did we want these toys did we have friends that had them that type of thing so so that'll be for our uh, special december christmas episode next month so hopefully everyone comes back and joins us for that and hopefully you enjoyed listening to our uh delve into the the world of blade runner check out our social media we're on facebook you can interact with us on there and uh send us any uh tips tidbits anything from talking about this movie that we missed or that you you know stuff about it that, that you find interesting that type of stuff whatever you want to do to interact with us we welcome it other than that i think we're wrapping up brad how uh how are you up. doing we we you have a good time Today was amazing, and you know what? It only gets better from today. I get to ride my new bicycle today, so hey! Oh, oh. <laughs> ride flex bikes like like other people collect other things that are not as expensive. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, know, I don't know what I was going for there, but do you, how many? No, we we talked about this. You don't have that many because don't you like? It's sort have, of like me with my hobby stuff. You shift them in and out. Like I, I, I was like, oh, I got. I am at the point now where I'm not going to go any further. I, six bikes is the limit that the apartment can take. <laughs> 
and I can take personally because I'm running out of kitchen room space. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. And now, how many miles will you do today? Because you, you you get out there and you fucking go. Yesterday I was doing. I do on the weekends probably between forty to sixty. During the week it's maybe thirty five ish is what I aim for. So yeah, I'll probably do. I've got some plans today to do a little bit of music shopping downtown San Diego. So I'll, I'm not going to take the new bike. I'm going to take one of my other ones. But I'll, I'll I'll put some good miles on today. I'll come back tired. Nice, nice. Well, that's awesome. You're so you're active and stuff. And that's that's awesome. I uh, I am not nearly as active as I stay here reclining in my. You are uh, comfy. And my God, you you download this recording and then just take a nap. It's all good. Yeah, it's good. I'll watch <laughs> some football. That's good. Yeah. It's all good. So. Sure. All right. Well, Brad's going to be out there being active. I'm going to not be active because that's what I do best. So uh, <laughs> thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you, Brad, my friend, for uh, for another fun episode. I appreciate it. Always, brother. And we will be back in one month. Until then, just a reminder, do your best to be more human than human. been listening to ego the 80s geek out podcast with ian clark and brad anderson we are a part of the freebooters network check out the freebootersnetwork.com to listen to all the awesome podcasts on the network we also invite you to check out our sponsor geek nation tours at geeknationtours.com and interact with our facebook page ask questions offer comments and critiques thank you so much for listening we'll see you next time